So, I, I, I am Pastor Michael, and um, today we're going to, uh, we're continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at the trial of Jesus, which is one of the most, <laughs> it is the most extraordinary event, because the scriptures tell us that in this trial, and through these court proceedings, God is saving the world from its sins. And so that's what's at stake, right? This is the claim of Christianity, that because of this trial, because of the outcome of this trial, humanity is saved. And so we're going to read the text, and I also want you to notice that Peter has a part to play in the story. It's an important part, and so we're going to look at it all. So if you can look, follow along on the screen, um, I'm going to read to you from John 18, Verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. This is the word of God. So you don't need to be an English lit major to immediately recognize that the gospel writer John is weaving together very skillfully these two stories. So that you have, on, you have the first story where Jesus of Nazareth is on trial and he's being questioned by Annas. And then you have this other story, a second story, 
where Peter is in the courtyard of the same house, okay? He's in the same place, and he is also being questioned simultaneously. And so it's a very dramatic story. And you can see that John, he he alternates accounts, right? He goes back and forth between the two stories so that if this were a movie, it would be in split screen because it's happening at the same time. And so John here, he's purposely putting these two stories together. And what he's telling us is that when you put them side by side, that's when you understand the meaning of Jesus's trial. So here's the outline. I have three points. First, we're going to look at the trial and we're going to look at specifically the details of the court proceedings. And what does that tell us? Secondly, we're going to look at Peter in the courtyard and you could think of it as a second trial. And so what is going on in the second trial and what does that tell us? And then finally, we're going to put the two together. And so what do the two trials juxtaposed to each other like this tell us together? So that's the roadmap. Let's begin. Number one, Jesus's trial. So in order to understand what's going on, we have to ask a basic question, which is, why was Jesus arrested? Why was he on trial in the first place? What is this all about? And the answer is you have to understand a little bit about first century politics in Judea. And this is very important, so please bear with me, okay? So you have to understand that in this time, the land of Israel is under Roman occupation. And the Romans were really interested in only two things. They were interested in plunder and they were interested in glory, martial glory. But otherwise, they were uninterested in the day-to-day you know, administration and, and governance of the conquered people. And particularly when it came to, you know, local customs and, you know, local religious practices, that was all just a huge headache for them. And so whenever possible, they would delegate that task to local ruling councils. And the local ruling council for the Jewish people was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin consisted of the temple priests in Jerusalem and members of the Jewish aristocracy. So these are the elites of that society. And the Sanhedrin, they handle the day-to-day governing of the Jewish people, particularly when it came to religious matters. You know, things like the religious feasts, you know, Passover, Yom Kippur. And their basic job, right, their basic job was to maintain the peace. And they saw themselves as the interface between the Roman Empire far away and below them, the Jewish people, right? And so they were the interface between these sort of adversarial poles and they were keeping the peace. And so that's one word for it, right? That they were the interface. There's another word for it, which would be collaborators, which is how the Jewish people saw them. They saw the Sanhedrin as collaborators who enabled Roman occupation. And the Sanhedrin kept the peace so that the Romans can more effectively extract their taxes. 
Estimates ran somewhere between 40 and 50, maybe even 60% of the income of the common people were taxed by the Romans, seized by the Romans. And if you didn't pay these taxes, you would be beaten and imprisoned. These were oppressive taxes. And through this arrangement, the Sanhedrin grew wealthy and powerful while the common people were grinding in poverty and oppression. And then comes along Jesus of Nazareth. He is this charismatic preacher in Galilee. And the Sanhedrin began to receive reports that he is performing these astonishing miracles. And he's drawing these massive crowds. And he's preaching about the kingdom of God. Do you remember Jesus' first sermon, right? His inaugural speech, so to speak, uh, that launched his movement. It's recorded in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Listen to this. Listen to the words. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom for the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you understand how potent these words were? Jesus was evoking these deep longings spoken of in the prophets, that one day God would send the Messiah, who would be a new and greater David, and he would deliver the people from oppression. And so, you know, Jesus, he, he's, he's building this movement, you know, and for three years, he's operating largely in Galilee. But then suddenly, Jesus begins to head down south towards Jerusalem. And all along the way, he's performing miracles, right? He brings with him this entourage of Galilean believers. And everywhere, people are excited. They're saying, is this the Messiah? And Jesus is coming just at the time of Passover, which is really Jewish Independence Day, which is really a celebration of Jewish freedom from Egypt. And so the Sanhedrin, they're seeing this, they're receiving reports of this, and they are in full-on panic mode. And they say to themselves, we have to kill this man. He is an existential threat to our power and to the status quo. And so they absolutely decide, they decide that they absolutely have to eliminate him. The only obstacle is the truth. You need to understand that this whole trial from beginning to end is a farce. It is a complete miscarriage of justice. And John, he goes to great lengths to highlight this point, that this was an illegal trial. And so let me walk you through several of the details. So number one, according to Jewish law, all capital trials, and a capital trial is a trial in which the death penalty is being considered. So this is a capital trial, right? According to Jewish law, capital trials were required to be conducted over no less than two days. No less than two days. So that there wouldn't be a rush to judgment. 
so that passions could cool, so that the court could consider the evidence sober-mindedly, right? So no less than two days. Secondly, again, according to Jewish law, all trials were to be conducted during daylight in a public forum so that the public could witness it, so that it could be public scrutiny, so that everything is out in the open, so that nothing is hidden, right? There's no sort of hanky-panky going on. But notice in our, in our story, Jesus' trial is conducted in the dead of night, cloaked in secrecy, and the total length from the time of Jesus' arrest to the time of his execution is less than 12 hours. Don't you see? This is a sham trial. The whole thing was just railroaded through without any due process. Third point. We're just getting started, okay? Again, according to Jewish law, before the accused could ever be addressed, at least two eyewitnesses had to be produced. This is in Deuteronomy 19.15. And these eyewitnesses had to be examined and cross-examined, and their testimonies had to agree or else it was invalid. Again, there had to be at a minimum of two witnesses before the accused can, can be questioned. And the purpose of this was to protect the innocent against self-incrimination. And in many ways, you know, Jewish law anticipated Western jurisprudence so that a corrupt court couldn't you know, lean and coerce a false confession from the accused. But notice in our story, the high priest immediately begins to interrogate Jesus. And in verse 19, he questions Jesus about his disciples, that's ominous, and his teachings. And he's basically saying, listen, we know you're plotting to overthrow the Roman Empire. Tell us your plans and give us the names of your associates, of the ringleaders, so that we could round them up. I want you to look at Jesus' answer. It is an amazing answer. Verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, I have spoken openly. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And so do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, first of all, why aren't you following the law? Why are you violating the Torah, which is the law of God, which you have sworn to uphold? Where are the witnesses? The law of God says you have to produce at least two eyewitnesses and they cannot contradict each other. And then secondly, Jesus is saying, every day I taught in the temple courts. Everything is out there in the public record. I have said nothing in private that I did not say in public. There are literally hundreds of witnesses. Go and ask them. I want us to pause here for a moment and just reflect on how incredible this is. Because I want you to understand that Jesus is not just being uncooperative. He is asserting his legal rights. 
and the legal rights of all defendants, which are given to them by God. And it's remarkable because even as he is bound, Jesus is decrying the moral corruption of this court. He is saying you can't declare that someone is guilty without giving them due process. Now, in response, the officer of the court, he strikes Jesus. And in verse 22, he says, is that how you answer the high priest? Now, what commentators think is going on is that this officer is invoking the legal principle in Exodus 22, 28, right? He's basically saying, okay, you're quoting scripture. How about this scripture? Exodus 22, 28 says, do not curse the ruler of your people. And so he's accusing Jesus of insubordination. Look at Jesus' response in verse 23. Again, amazing. Jesus says, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And so Jesus is basically saying, Listen, is my challenge to this illegal interrogation Is that wrong? Then you need to prove the case. Otherwise, you can't just abuse prisoners in your custody. That's an abuse of power. And so do you see that every at every step, Jesus is asking for, he is asking for a fair trial. He's asking for the law of God to be upheld. But at every turn, this court shows a complete disregard for fairness and for truth-seeking. Because this court is not seeking to discover the truth. This court is not trying to be fair because it's already been decided. The verdict has already been cooked into the books. And this is clearly demonstrated And revealed very poignantly at the beginning of our text. In verse 14, John reminds us that Caiaphas had said, it is better for one man to die than the whole nation to perish, right? And so John, he's reminding us, he's going back to John 11, when the Sanhedrin had received reports about Jesus and they were in turmoil. They didn't know what to do. And Caiaphas very shrewdly comes up with this plan And he says, listen to this, he says, don't you know it's better that one man should die than the whole nation should perish? That is an incredible statement. It is one of the most incredible statements, I believe, in the whole Bible. And if I had the time, I could preach an entire sermon on this verse alone. There's just so many layers to it. There's so much complex perspectives to it because on the one hand on the one hand Caiaphas check this out is unknowingly preaching the gospel he's saying Jesus is going to lay down his life to save his people and it's amazing to me right that the clearest statement of the gospel of spoken by anyone in the gospel stories apart from Jesus comes in the mouth 
of this man who's just breathing out fire and hatred for Jesus, clearer than any of the disciples. And so what does that tell us about, you know, the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, right? There's just, there's, there's so much that we could think about. But on the other hand, this shows us Caiaphas's just absolutely cynical, just cynical attitude about political expediency. And it captures perfectly everything that is wrong with this world. Because you see, for Caiaphas, the truth doesn't matter. Justice doesn't matter. What matters is that the people in power stay in control. What matters is that the ends justify the means. And if you have to roll over an inconvenient individual to get there, then so be it. I want you to see that what John is showing us here is that this trial is a travesty of justice. Where an innocent man, an innocent man is condemned so that the Sanhedrin can maintain its grip on power and on money. That's what this is all about. It's about money. It's about power. I want you to know that this trial is a picture of where this project of human civilization so often leads us. Because we create these human structures of authority. And rather than protecting and serving the people... The people are so often exploited and ground up. And the weak and the lowly are crushed. And we see this, you know, on the grand scale of human history. This is the story of the rise and fall of empires. And we see this on the right with fascism. And we see this on the left with communism. We see this on this, you know, epic scale of human civilizations and We see it in a small scale in our everyday lives, in our workplaces, at school, in our organizations. We see, all of us have seen the powerful trample on the weak. We have seen structures and systems crush the individual and disposable people. And I think in this way, the Bible is such a powerful document because it speaks truth to power because it defends the cause of the lowly and the oppressed and the bible has the audacity to say that the voices of those who cry out the voices of those who have suffered injustice god hears them god hears them And one day, the Bible tells us, the king will return and he will set everything right and every evil and every injustice will be overturned and reversed. It's an incredible story. It's the most beautiful story that has ever been told. But let's go to the second point. That's the first story. The second story now, Peter in the courtyard. So Peter has a part in this story as well. While Jesus is being questioned by the Sanhedrin, 
Peter is also being questioned. And what John gives us here is a study in contrasts. So that while Jesus is being steadfast, he holds on to the truth and he won't budge an inch. Peter succumbs to the pressure. And so let's take a look at the story. After the arrest, Peter decides to follow Jesus. And he goes along with another disciple who remains unnamed. And most commentators think this is the gospel writer John himself because it matches sort of the reticence and the modesty with which he refers to himself. You know, it might be John, it might be another disciple, I don't know. But together, Peter and this unnamed disciple, they go into the courtyard of the high priest. But what happens is that at the door, the servant girl asks Peter this question. In verse 17, she says, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, I want you to know this is the least threatening, the softest challenge possible, because this is posed by this lowly servant girl who occupied the lowest rung on the totem pole of this household. And secondly, the question is posed in the negative. She's assuming Peter is not a disciple. And so Peter could have, you know, muttered some kind of vague non-answer. I mean, truly, what does it matter? She's just a servant girl. But Peter is immediately threatened because the stakes are incredibly high. Imprisonment, maybe even death. And so Peter immediately distances himself from Jesus. And he says, I am not. The second question comes all the way down in verse 25. Peter is standing by the fire. He's warming himself. He's trying his best to remain inconspicuous. And the sequence of the story here is really important because in Luke chapter 22, verse 61, which is the parallel account, it tells us, Luke tells us that Peter was near enough that he could see Jesus from a distance. He was able to see what was going on in the trial. And so very likely Peter saw, or at the very least heard, the hard slap unexpectedly put on Jesus. And imagine what it was like for Peter in that moment. Because suddenly he realized that this whole incident that maybe he thought would somehow blow over, you know, Jesus always managed to somehow slip out of these problems. This whole incident was now going to be much more violent and messy than he had thought. And the shock of that moment must have just spiked his his panic and his stress. And so as the trial is going on, right, that's the point. As this trial is proceeding and Peter could witness it, the second question is posed to him in verse 25. And the question is, are you a disciple of that man? Peter is adamant, I am not. The second denial. The question is posed a third time in verse 26. The questions are now coming in rapid succession. But this time, the question is posed by someone who is part of the arresting party. And he basically says to Peter, you know, now that this question is asked, you look awfully familiar to me. Didn't I see you in the garden when we arrested Jesus? The situation is now critical. 
Here is somebody who remembers or thinks he remembers seeing Peter. And so if Peter's disavowal is going to have any teeth to it, any kind of believability, much stronger measures are going to be needed. And in the parallel accounts in Matthew 26, Mark chapter 14, the text tells us that when Peter denied Jesus for the third time, the text specifically tells us he did it with cursing and swearing. And it's important here to realize that when he was cursing, he was cursing Jesus. Because the verb there for curse is not a reflexive verb. He wasn't cursing himself. Otherwise, the word himself would be there. It's a transitive verb, meaning there has to be an object to the cursing. Peter was cursing someone to save his own skin. Who was he cursing? He was cursing Jesus. And the Greek word that is used here is the word anathematizo. Anathematizo is where we get the English word anathema, And it means to curse someone to hell. It is an extremely strong word. Why would Peter do this? Don't you understand? No disciple, no true disciple would ever curse his own master. That's how Peter saves himself. He condemns Jesus to hell. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times Jesus is asked, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And three times Jesus says, I am he. Ego in me. And then at the very end, he says, you have me now. Let these others go. In the courtyard, Peter is asked three times, are you a disciple of that man? And three times, Peter says, I am not. And at the very end, he says, let Jesus be cursed. What does this all mean? I want you to know that Peter is a picture of the human race. And it shows us that the human race is not a noble race. But we are liars. We are cowards. And you know, Peter is not the worst of the disciples. He's the best of the disciples. Earlier, when when Peter said to Jesus, Lord, all of these may fall away, but I will never fall away. Nobody laughed. Nobody scoffed because he was the best of them. And let's not forget that Peter here is the only one, along with this unnamed disciple, to follow Jesus. All the other disciples fled for their lives. They were just gone. But when it came down to it, Peter's discipleship to Jesus was conditional. He was willing to follow Jesus so long as it led to success and prosperity. So long as the times were good. But he was not willing to follow when the times were bad. He was not willing to follow Jesus down into the dark valleys and the painful trials of discipleship. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs 17, 17. And it is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, I think. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves 
at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. The essence of friendship, of all relationships really, is to endure. Otherwise, it's just a transaction. You know, it's just goods and services. It's contingent. But real friendship, real discipleship to Jesus is a binding commitment. That is the basis of all relationship. That is the basis of all community. Otherwise, it's just every man for himself. I want you to know that we live in a world without loyalty. And if you believe in loyalty, man, you're a sucker. You're just waiting to be taken advantage of. We live in a treacherous world where you can't trust anyone's word, where people are just saying what they need to say to you to get what they want out of you. Don't you see, this is the root of human fallenness. This is why our world is a broken place. Because we don't love people, we use people. We don't love God, we use God. Don't you see, we are all Peter. That leads me to my third point, the two stories together. So I want you to know that these two stories are mirror images of each other. In the first story, Jesus is accused of something false, that he's leading a rebellion. In the second story, Peter is accused of something true, that he is a disciple of Jesus. In the first story, Jesus speaks the truth. He stands firm and he protects his disciples. Notice he never mentions the disciples at any point. He's, he's always shielding them. And in the end, he is condemned to die. In the second story, Peter lies and curses and he utterly betrays and denies Jesus. And at the end, his life is spared. I want you to know, this is not just poetic symmetry. You know, this is not just, oh, isn't this interesting? This, you know, clever literary device, you know, something that English majors could get really excited about. No offense to English majors. I, I love English majors, of course. I want you to know, I want you to know, this is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel, hear me now, is an exchange. The heart of the gospel is God in Christ standing in place of guilty man. And I think no one said it better than John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, which uh, a couple of years ago I, I reread and it blew me away because I truly think it is one of, if not the greatest book just this long meditation on the death of Christ on the cross. And this is what John Stott writes. Listen to this. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. 
That's what this trial is, don't you see? It's man putting himself in the place of the judge. Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's what's going on in this trial. Jesus Christ, the God-man, he subjects himself to this corrupt, evil trial. And he stands in the place of guilty man. In the movie, The Last of the Mohicans, there's a scene at the end of the movie, every time I see it, I I tear up. And the setting is during the French and Indian War, uh, during colonial times. And there's a character in the movie named Major Duncan, who is in love with this woman named Cora. But you see, Cora doesn't love him back. She loves a man named Hawkeye, who is sort of the hero of the story, right? He is, you know, the last of the Mohican Indians. And then in the climax of the story, what happens is all all of them, this whole party, they're captured and they're prisoners of an Indian camp um, of the Huron Indians. And the Huron chief, right, he doesn't speak English. He can only speak his native language. And he can also speak French because the Huron Indians are allies of the French. And of the party, only Duncan can speak French, a little bit of French. And so he has to translate. And so the Huron chief, he says, for the sins of her family, Cora will be burned in the fire. Because you see, Cora's father is an English governor, and so he is responsible for the death of many Huron Indians. And Hawkeye, he's, he's listening to this, right? And he immediately turns, he's listening to Duncan translate, and he immediately turns to, to Duncan, and he says, you tell the Indian chief, take me instead. My life for hers, I will die in her place. Take me instead. And the Huron chief, right, he's, He's looking at Hawkeye, you know, gesturing so wildly. And Duncan turns to him and he pauses for a moment. And then he deliberately mistranslates. And he says, me for her. Take me instead. And then they grab Duncan and they throw him into the fire. And in the fire, you know, Duncan... He stretches out his arms. He's screaming in agony, right? That imagery there is very purposeful and symbolic. And then he dies. And it's one of the most moving scenes in the movie. And if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? There's this soaring music. It's this beautiful score. And there is not a dry eye in the theater. Why is that? Why does it resonate with our hearts? Because it reminds us of another story, a greater story. That at the center of history, God and Jesus Christ did that for us. You see, because of our sins, because human beings create these structures of authority and then we abuse it, because we are liars and cowards, because we are faithless, we deserve to die. Don't you see? That's the natural consequence for our sins. We deserve death. 
But Jesus Christ, he comes down and he says, take me instead. My life for yours. That's the gospel. At the heart of the gospel is an exchange. That's what's going on in this trial. Christ, the God-man, the only truly innocent man who has ever lived, is condemned to die. And in exchange, we are set free and we are saved. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, when we read the story, when we look at this story, we see a mirror of ourselves, of human society. We see that every time we have power and wealth, we so often we abuse it, we crush the weak and the lowly. And in Peter, we see that our word, that our word is just like the wind, and we easily give it, but we do not, we are not willing to pay the cost. And friendships and relationships are disposable. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our substitute and our Savior, who stands in our place. And finally, Lord, I want to pray for all the present troubles going on in our world. I want to pray for this terrible pandemic that is ravaging not just our nation, but the whole land. I pray that you would comfort all of those who have lost their businesses, who have lost their health. And I pray especially for the healthcare workers who are on the front lines. Would you be a shield around them? I pray for the racial reckoning that our nation is now going through and the long struggle for racial justice. Would you be with us? Would you help us move towards justice? I pray for the wildfires that are ravaging the land. There are literally people who are on the run, who are living in hotels because their homes are no longer safe. Please help them. I pray for all of us as we are now disconnected from community and and touch and friendships and and our connections and communications are attenuated. Please help us to preserve. And all of these things are happening at once. And it seems almost too much to bear. Lord, be with us. Have mercy on us. We need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.